0: All right, everybody, welcome to episode two of the Illusion of Consensus podcast with myself, independent journalist Rav Arora, based in Vancouver, Canada, and Dr. Jay Bhattacharya, a Stanford epidemiologist who has been a vocal advocate of many focused protection measures throughout the pandemic. And uh, uh, Dr. Jay and I are going to come together over the next several months or years or however long this project is and try to make sense of the various kinds of consensus in science and how many different kinds of consensus can be weaponized and politicized in times of great crisis and political turmoil. And uh, today we have um, several topics to discuss, including censorship, including defaulting to experts and anti-vax hysteria. So we look forward to uh, just getting right in. How are you feeling, Jay?
1: So good to talk to you, Ralph. Nice to be back.
0: Yeah, you've been testifying in Congress, so we'll get to we will get to all of that.
1: Yep, should be fun. But you had so you had an agenda you want to talk about first. In yeah. fact, I think we were going to plan to talk about last time about. Uh, so why don't you, why don't we get to that first? Sure.
0: Yeah. So there's one story in the Atlantic that was getting a lot of virality on Twitter. Um, and the story is called My Six-Year-Old Son Died, Then the Anti-Vaxx Found Out. It's written by Billy Ball, who's a newspaper editor, I believe, in North Carolina. And uh, in the article, he writes about his six-year-old son dying at his home um, due to some sort of accident, um, which led to a rare cerebral swelling condition and paramedics uh, arrived at the scene, um, but they were too late and they couldn't save his brain. And so he tragically ended up dying. And as Billy writes, um, he posted about this on Twitter and right away he was getting attacked by anti-vaxxers and vaccine skeptics for for vaccinating his son, which they think led to his death, even though there's no evidence for that. And uh, the death was caused by a household accident, um, which he didn't really specify what it was, but it was a household accident. And there's no sign of anything being caused by, by the COVID vaccine. But right away on Twitter, a lot of ideologues on the right, on the sort of far conspiratorial right, were immediately jumping on this and attacking him for vaccinating his son. And the story was getting a lot of play on Twitter. A lot of people were tweeting about it. And I think it's just important to you know talk about um, this side of things, because oftentimes it, it can be easy or convenient to get stuck in sort of narrow bubbles of concern. I mean, there are a lot of different issues in the pandemic, left, right, center, journalists, uh, government actors, social media companies, etc. And we should be willing to talk about all sides of the discussion and point out where all different sides are going to extreme because all different kinds of factions can become victims to this kind of ideological hysteria and lose sense of reality and lose sense of our grounding ethics that are so important and that we both both feel have been lost by both sides throughout the pandemic. So um, what do you think about this, Jay, about how people sometimes reactively respond to these stories of, of people dying and jump to say that the vaccine caused it?
1: I mean, first of all, that is a tragic, tragic story. It's, uh, I mean, I have three children, Rob, uh, who are uh, now in their teens and early twenties, and I cannot imagine losing any of them. Uh, so my heart just goes out to this, uh, this journalist, uh, Billy Ball. I, I mean, just, just reading the story, just, uh, I mean, especially as a parent, it makes your, your, it just rends your heart. Um, uh, at the, uh, the, uh, the idea that people would use such a story to try to make some um, political point is just disgusting. It just makes me really, really sad to think that anyone would do such a thing. Um, when a parent is grieving over a lost child, I, I, I mean, I think uh, that, that's the very last thing that ought to happen. Um, uh, as, far as, as far as like the, uh, the source of it though, I think is worth talking about, it's sort of interesting. Um, and I view this as a public health failure more than, I mean, it's, it's, it's obviously it's a human failure. It's, a, it's, a, you know, it's a dehumanizing thing to, to, uh, to try to, to not just sort of, uh, uh, give parents who are in that position, all the sympathy in the world. Um, uh, but I actually view this as a public health failure and let me tell you why. Uh, public health is not supposed to divide populations against each other. It's not supposed to create uh, these kinds of divisions where people demonize each other or try to try to uh, tr- treat each other as if they're, you know, as if they're like less than human. Um, and what, what you what you just described is this poor man, Billy Ball, and his family is being treated that way. Um, I, I and I, I the, but the, but the the underlying cause is that public health put forward vaccine mandates that were incredibly people lost their jobs over it. Uh, on the other side, people were made to feel as if if, the, uh, if, 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 uh, if people didn't get vaccinated, then they were a danger to them and to society at large. So you have essentially two sides on, uh, uh, who are at odds with each other, both of whom feel aggrieved as a consequence of the behavior and actions of the other side. But it was public health that caused this divide, on the basis of a of a false idea about what the vaccines can and cannot do. Right, the vaccines, as we've talked about, I think before, in, maybe in other settings, the vaccines, while they may be good at reducing the risk of dying if you get COVID, they do not stop you from getting or spreading COVID. Uh, it's not true that someone who's unvaccinated therefore poses a, a more or a risk to you than. Um, someone who's unvaccinated, especially if, if both have been, had COVID and recovered at some point. And so you've created, but 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 uh, public health pushed on the basis of the idea that the vaccine, vaccinated were safe, unvaccinated were unsafe for the public at large. They pushed this idea that, uh, that, the, that the vaccinated were clean and the unvaccinated were unclean. And so you have a group of people, the unvaccinated, uh, some of whom lost their jobs, some of whom lost uh, opportunities to to travel, some even lost, uh, you know, couldn't visit with family because, you know, they, maybe they weren't vaccinated living outside the U.S. and they were allowed in, um, who feel like the public health has harmed them. And on the other side, you have a lot of people who who, under, who believe public health that, uh, that, that uh, the vaccine was really important, to reduce the risk of transmission, to, to, to eliminate eliminate the risk of transmission. Um, and the victims of this are on both sides. And here, I think you have a story of, of a victim. In this case, the victim is um, uh, Mr. Ball, who wrote this Atlantic story, and his family. I mean, I think it's just, it's one of these things where uh, I, I look at it, and I think, uh, what 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 might have been if instead of, the divisive rhetoric that public health pushed we had uh, they had actually pushed for compassion for each other uh where where it, instead of the the kind of well, you must do this or else you're you're unclean um which caused a, a, a completely understandable reaction on one side and on the other on the other side um you, we'd said okay we are uh we, we the vaccine is really good for reducing the risk of death um if you're if you're in a high risk group you should get it um, but we should treat everybody's decision as their own decision, something that you make between your your, um, your doctor and you, uh, and, and then just left it at that. Like we treat many, 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 actually most other medical conditions or medical decisions.
0: Right. I do want to be clear, though, while public health completely failed throughout the pandemic, and you and I fully agree on that, and I've written much about it, and, and we're going to talk more about that later uh, I also just I, I don't want to excuse those people on sort of the fringes of the of the right side of the political spectrum who are very conspiratorial. Like public health didn't cause them to um, engage in this kind of rhetoric where they're guessing or or needlessly speculating, you know s- suddenly someone dies and the vaccine caused it. I mean, yes, public health failed, but you know like like you and I are not you know speculating about you know Billy Ball's son. Um, dying of the vaccine, because even though public health has failed and we are, you know, just as skeptical, just as rationally skeptical of public health and their decrees just as the next person, we're still not descending into this more conspiratorial realm, which many other people did. So while public health is to blame for a lot of the problem, some people still just go way too far. And I want to be clear in saying that just because public health has been wrong, just because they've lied and misled. Doesn't mean you start piling on other people on Twitter um, and spec- needlessly speculating that various fatalities were the result of the vaccine when there is no evidence to suggest that that is the case, right?
1: Oh, I I agree with you. I mean, I think uh, the the people who are piling on on Mister Ball and, and his family should leave him alone. That's not right. Uh, I mean, I, I just one 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 note. I, I'm not sure it's just it's right to call it far right. Um, I, I mean, people who uh, who oppose the COVID vaccine or on the many of them oppose the the mandates, anyways, are on on the left and right. But uh, I'll say is that uh, maybe we, yeah, we, sure. one way to, one way to talk about it is is that uh, people who are deeply opposed to the COVID vaccine mandates, um, there are groups who. Uh, view the, the the mandates as so bad that it warrants these kind of attacks on people like Mr. Ball, and I completely agree with you that they're wrong about that. They should not act that way. Uh, it's not right to make the lives of p- grieving parents harder, um, yeah. no matter who they are. And so I, th- I I I mean that's in that I completely entirely of one mind with you, Broth. Right.
0: And while, while we, we fully sympathize with Mr. Ball and, and don't want anyone to speculate on, on his son's death in, in this uh, crude kind of way, at the same time, when I was reading the article and looking online at all these attacks, it, it did occur to me that, that th- this group of people online who are attacking him for this, they don't have very much political or cultural power. I mean, this is not a group that is controlling institutions and implementing anti-vax radical conspiratorial ideas like, like like these are very fringe ideas that have no real i would say political or cultural influence in this climate right and, and i and i feel like sometimes people tend to exaggerate the power that these kind of people have i mean th- these kind of people who are speculating this way i mean like like name five major people who are in this faction i mean you know, people come up with names like brett weinstein and alex berenson but the, those those aren't these people, right? That's a different group of people, the group of people who are ruthlessly just attacking people um, in the way that Mr. Ball describes they're, they're, these are not the people running the CDC or the FDA or, or, or have any place in mainstream media or podcasting or, you know, Joe Rogan's podcast or whatever, like, like these people have no voice outside of, you know, anonymous Twitter profiles and whatnot. So I, I think it's important to be clear that this is not some massive force of people that might get into power and might start, you know, growing in their their influence in positions of power, these very much are people on the fringes that don't have very much influence at all outside of uh, very niche kind of online conspiratorial communities. Would you agree?
1: I mean, I, I, I agree that they tend to not have very much cultural power, but I have to say that The group of people who are skeptical, not just of the COVID vaccines, but of all vaccines, has grown larger than I've ever seen it in my entire career. And um, I I understand why it's happened. It's because public health oversold this vaccine as being able to stop the the transmission of the disease. Um, They lost their credibility, and a lot of people are now in a camp where they're saying, "Well, I don't, I don't know if I believe public health or other thing That's why I think uh, in earlier when I was talking about who's really I, who I really hold to account for this, it's really it's public health. It's our responsibility in public health to tell the truth uh, and be compassionate always, even with people that are on the fringe, even people we disagree with. Um, and I think that that failure to do that by the Public health authorities that do have a lot of cultural power is what's led to both expansion of the group of people who are skeptical about vaccines generally, and and this vaccine, and also has led to uh, uh, on on the, this sort of demonization, dehumanization of Mr. Ball and his family, which is uh, I mean all all of this just strikes me as incredibly tragic.
0: <laughs> what comes to mind when you say that about how public health failed and how it in many ways caused a lot of um but both rational vaccine skepticism and conspiratorial vaccine skepticism and i think those two factions broadly are important to differentiate but the thought i had in my mind was a counter hypothetical like what if the fda and the cdc at the beginning when vaccines well when the trial data came out and vaccines were being distributed were very clear at the beginning that hey there are a lot of unknowns here and a lot of variables that we're not sure about, but given the death toll, given the risk that uh, vulnerable populations face, we strongly encourage you to get vaccinated, but for healthy people in their twenties, thirties or forties or children, there's a lot of uncertainty and the risk is super low. So make your own decision. And, and then once d- data more and more came out about the menstrual irregularities and myocarditis, then if the CDC and the FDA had honestly said, that there are a lot of risks here and individual decision-making should be prioritized. And it's perfectly rational for some people not to get the mRNA vaccines, right? If, if that were the FDA and the CDC, if they were honest about the risks and the benefits to various populations of people, I think you you would not have such a strong reaction on the other side, right?
1: Yeah, I mean, I I, I completely agree with that. I mean, uh, I, I think um, if, if uh, in fact, I wrote an op-ed with Sunetra Gupta in December of 2020, you know, professor at Oxford University, she, she's, she and I were, she was one of the co-authors of the Great Barrington Declaration, um, arguing exactly for that. In December 2020, I looked at the vaccine trials and I said, look, uh, we see in the trials that the vaccine reduces the probability of getting um, symptomatic disease if you have, uh, if you get COVID, uh, by by a fair amount, for at least for the duration of the trial, it did uh, compared to placebo. And so I recommended older people, uh, given although we didn't know all the potential harms of it, but it, it was still worth it because you were reducing a really large risk of dying—three, four, five percent of dying—if you were older and uh, and got COVID. Um, and for young people, it's much less aversion. Uh, it, that is, I think that analysis is exactly spot on. Um, if public health had done that, what would have happened is a very large, I think a larger fraction of the vulnerable population would have been vaccinated, um, probably fewer young people would have been vaccinated, but then you also wouldn't have had this sort of uh, this sort of reaction uh, to pu- this incredibly negative reaction to public health, because public health would have been trusted to, to tell the truth, follow evidence-based medicine, and to treat the entire population um, compassionately.
0: Right. That is really one of the inadvertent consequences of of the way public health failed is that you've suddenly employed, galvanized and uh, really invigorated all these people suddenly who are incredibly skeptical and critical of public health because of their their utter failures in this realm. A lot of those people otherwise wouldn't have spoken out on this topic. I mean, I, I wouldn't have spoken out on this topic. I, I would have never imagined a couple years ago, um, either in high school or when I started my journalistic career to spend virtually all my time now, all my journalistic time writing about vaccines and covid and mandates that only happened because of how public failed. Right. Otherwise, I have no interest in 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 epidemiology or vaccines. I've only become interested because of how my rights were taken away, how I was coerced when I didn't need this vaccine when many other people didn't need uh, to get vaccinated, but were forced to or lost their jobs, lost their livelihoods and were demonized in many ways. So the consequences of what public health has done and how much they've completely abandoned any form of, of honesty throughout the pandemic has resulted in many people who are emboldened and feel rightly disenfranchised with all this.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I think uh, I think that's right. Um, although maybe it's a, maybe in some sense it's a positive, Ralph. Now you know a lot more about uh, biology, about epidemiology, yeah. about uh, about uh, public health than you ever would would otherwise have known. It's good to have your voice.
0: Yeah. yeah, 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 and maybe we'll spend future episodes too talking about other forms of of consensus that people are now questioning. Um, let, let's table that for for another time. But th- but that is both a concern and potentially in some ways positive, if more and more people are skeptical of other kinds of consensus, um, there could be certain dangers or certain benefits with having that, But, but let's talk about that next time and let's move on now to the next topic, which is, uh, Sam Harris, who, uh, was recently on Lex Friedman's podcast and did a big viral interview there. I think, uh, I think it's at 1 million views right now on YouTube. I think it was trending top five on Spotify and Apple. Obviously Lex has a massive podcast and you've been on there before. You did a great interview there a couple of years ago and uh, it's uh, recently been revealed uh, thanks in part to uh, Alexandros uh, Moranos. Is that how you say his last name, by the way?
1: Yeah, I think so.
0: Moranos. Yeah. (laughs) Um, He did a great uh, Twitter thread on uh, Sam's uh, latest appearance on Lex's podcast um, talking about where Sam went wrong and, There's one thing that we just have to talk about because this is directly about you. And none none of this is is meant to be uh, an attack back on Sam or some kind of uh, reaction to something he got wrong. But just for public clarity, for honesty's sake and just coming from a place of of compassion, love and intellectual honesty and of of having an ethical understanding of how to navigate this pandemic, given the large influx of conflicting information in the pandemic. um, This thread highlighted um, how Sam, he was in a podcast with Barry Weiss and Michael Schellenberger uh, several weeks ago. I think this was late January or early February. And he called you out uh, in the podcast because of a Wall Street Journal article you wrote um, early on in the pandemic, which predicted, which, which gave an estimate between 20,000 to 2 million COVID deaths, given the vast uncertainty at the time. And Sam attacked you at the time and called you and then basically said that you your credibility was, was under question in many ways because you gave such a vast uh, estimate when at that time, your lowball estimate of, of 20,000 was completely inconceivable, given what was happening in Italy. And uh, his attack on you was was informed by the fact that Nicholas Christakis came on his podcast and apparently rightly predicted that there would be one million COVID deaths in the United States. Well, it turns out that that appears to have never happened. And in fact, at that time, when Dr. Christakis, who we have respect for and would welcome on this podcast anytime, he was on Sam's podcast and gave an estimate roughly of around 35,000 as the low ball estimate. And the high estimate that he gave was 300,000. And he said that these are rough estimates and there's a lot of uncertainty and it might, it might be less than that or it might be more. There's a lot we don't know, but that is the estimate that he gave. And that estimate turns out to be lower than to to your estimate. I mean, his, his high estimate was 300,000. You gave 2 million. And so the basis of Sam's critique of you that you substantially underestimated the magnitude of COVID deaths was completely wrong. And the experts that he had on were more wrong or just as wrong. And, and well, I don't even think that's the right way to look at it, because these were just estimates people were giving. So the foundation of, of these critiques that Sam made of you were completely erroneous. And the, this podcast with Lex has revealed many other things about about what he got wrong. But I'm just going to give you the chance to respond to to that because we did a podcast right after um, the uh, the discussion on Sam's podcast with Barry Weiss where he called you out and we were responding to his critique at the time but it, it turns out that that critique was based on a false premise that people could somehow rightly predict in April or May of 2020 how many people would die which is extremely difficult to do and is not is not a good test of how credible someone is. And in fact, the people that he had on were, were apparently less right than, than you were at the time. So it's just important to, uh, to highlight that.
1: I mean, I think the, the key thing for listeners to understand, um, if you're a professional uh, epidemiologist or infectious disease policy person working in the beginning of the pandemic, the goal wasn't to try to predict exactly how many people are going to die. Whoever gets that prediction right is the best. That that's not really the purpose of those predictions. Um, the purpose of those, those those kinds of ideas is to is to estimate the death rates, so that you first you can populate models. Like the, so, you want to know um, uh, how fast the disease is going to sp- uh, spread. It turns out, in those technically in 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 many ways, that those are linked to how deadly the disease is. Uh, in the early days of the pandemic, it became very clear that either we had a very, very deadly disease that only affected a few people, or we had a, uh, a disease that was very widespread, uh, but not so deadly per person, or anywhere in between. That's why my estimates were so, so broad in the early days of the pandemic. It, I mean, um, because I didn't know if it was, uh, it, was a, it was a really, really widespread disease with low per person mortality, infection fatality rate, or it was a high mortality disease infecting only a few people. Those were the two major possibilities, and then anywhere in between. Um, and so, you know, in, in a sense, Nick Nick got it right. I mean, the fact that his, his extreme was less than the 2 million or the, the million that people that have died, 1.2 million people that have died so far in, in, in the United States, for instance, is neither here nor there. I mean, he was reflecting uh, a lot of uncertainty about exactly what I just said. Um, and the purpose wasn't to try to, like, you know, be a soothsayer, say, I predicted exactly the number of people are going to die, who cares about, I mean, that that number, that early in the pandemic is not the relevant question. The relevant question is, uh, what is the nature of this disease? And then what policies can we uh, undertake to try to protect the population from it? Um, And so for Sam to use essentially like a like amateur soothsaying as if it were a measure of whether some expert is uh worthy of being listened to or not i think uh mis- misunderstands the purpose of epidemiology in the context of an infectious disease p- pandemic like like COVID.
0: right and it, and it appears that this is probably an innocent mistake he appears to have completely just misremembered what was said on his podcast so i expect and have faith that, that Sam is going to correct the record. Um, I, I might just email him about this, or hopefully he finds out um, otherwise that the foundation of his critique against you was, was completely wrong. Uh, but but moving on from from um, Sam's incorrect comments about you, um, I just want to point out a couple things that he said on Lex's podcast, not because we, we, we want to focus on him, but because what he said is broadly representative of many concerns and many sort of dominant views that people had on on his side, which is the people who were following the CDC and the FDA and the public health authorities at the time um, when vaccines were being distributed, especially. Um, Well, one comment that he made to Lex was, it was obviously reasonable to get vaccinated, especially because there was every reason to expect that while it wasn't a perfect vaccine, it was going to knock down transmission a lot. So it wasn't just a personal choice. You were actually being a good citizen when you decided to run whatever risk you were going to run to get vaccinated in the summer of 2021. And I really want to highlight that that point here that he's making that you it was sort of a moral obligation. You were a good citizen to run this risk in the summer of 2021 at the time, given what we thought we knew at the time and given that it was apparently rational to expect that the vaccine would knock down transmission a lot, as he says. What do you think of that view in retrospect, and and holding that view at that time, absent the information that we have now?
1: I mean, at the time, let's let's go back to before twenty, just uh, say July twenty twenty one. Let's go back to December of twenty twenty. At that point, we had essentially randomized trials. I think actually pretty high quality randomized trials for, uh, let's say, the Pfizer vaccine and the, and, and very similar results for the, the Moderna vaccine, um, both of which had as their endpoint the prevention of symptomatic infection for two months. Now, uh, if you think about what symptomatic infection is, right, you, you're exposed to the virus and it causes you to have some symptoms. Um, that's not the same thing as it causes you to have severe symptoms, right? Uh, So you might ask, well, if I prevent symptomatic infection, might I also prevent severe symptoms, you know, symptoms so severe that you end up in the hospital or you die from it? I mean, that seems like a reasonable inference. It's not certain because it didn't have that as an end, the trials did not have that as an endpoint. If they had had that as an endpoint, they would have required Many because because those outcomes are rarer, this severe disease, it would have required a much larger number of people enrolled in the trial to to obtain statistical significance. But it's not an unreasonable uh, inference that if a product or vaccine prevents symptomatic disease, it also prevents severe symptomatic disease. On the other hand, can you infer in December of 2020 from the trial that since the vaccine prevents symptomatic infection, it also prevents you from getting infected at all or from transmitting the disease to other people. Well, there, the, that inference is not so easy to make. Uh, we know, for instance, that a lot of people who have uh, COVID have very, very mild symptoms, or or, uh, or many people actually, no symptoms at all, uh, that they, they have an infection, they clear it without, without even really noticing it. And they might pass the disease on at that point. Uh, I mean, that's the basis for a lot of the restrictions that we had in place all through the years. So um, the trial doesn't exclude the possibility that the vaccine doesn't prevent you from getting infected, and it doesn't, or even if you're vaccinated, you can get the, the infection and pass it on to others. The trial doesn't show that it protects against that. Uh, and so in December 2020, I don't think it was reasonable to think that the, 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 that we knew for certain that the vaccine would stop infection or that would would, uh, stop transmission of the disease. We did not know that for certain in December of 2020. As as 2021 went on, it became clearer and clearer that the vaccines did not stop transmission. Heavily vaccinated countries saw massive outbreaks of COVID. You know, uh, Data were coming out of Israel, out of of, uh, Spain, out of, uh, you know, a a number of countries that were heavily vaccinated where they were getting big outbreaks. That meant that the vaccine did not stop transmission. Uh, There were great studies out of places like Qatar um, using good epidemiological methods, cohort studies, that showed that the vaccine blocking, against, vaccine efficacy against even symptomatic infection only lasted for a very short time, maybe two, three months before, I'll only lasted for two months. Um, so, And certainly by summer of 2021, even in the United States, the CDC, based on that provinceton study, concluded that the vaccine did not stop transmission, that did not prevent you from getting infected and therefore, didn't stop you from infecting others. Uh, so I don't agree with Sam based on the scientific evidence that was available at the time that it was possible to conclude that the vaccine was was necessary to uh, to, to to protect other people. It just doesn't have that property in that in the sense of that it, it you can get vaccinated, get infected, and still infect others. Um, the, the second thing I'd say about this the the characterization of well, if you do this, it's it's you're you're doing like your your patriotic duty, or you're 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 doing the the, the 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 sort of good and righteous thing. This moralization of the act of vaccination, I think, was a mistake. Even if the vaccine did reduce transmission or stop transmission, because I think that moralization has its own consequences, even apart from the vaccination decision. I think that the, as we talked about earlier, uh, Rob, the, uh, the 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 rise of vaccine um, skepticism is in part due to the moralization of the vaccination decision, and it's public health that aided and abetted that. And thankfully it was it was political figures that aided and abetted. President Biden actually got, uh, gave speeches in 2021 where he moralized the vaccine. Um, I, I think. If they, it had instead been left as a medical decision, with a, by, given by a trusted, uh, with advice given by a trusted public health authority of, for whom it was most beneficial, you would have seen much better, much better outcomes. Uh, in my mind, I want to separate the scientific evidence about the vaccine, which on which Sam was wrong, it uh, didn't didn't actually stop transmission, from the how do you tell people about it? How does, how does public health uh, introduce the vaccine? The key element there, I'd say, is you should not moralize medical treatments. It's a big mistake because it leads to social division that can ha- can cause harm in many other ways, as we've seen happen through the pandemic.
0: Now, what if the vaccine did reliably stop transmission for six, seven, eight months, up to a year? And let's say the infection fatality rate was two percent, three percent, then is it appropriate, you think, to moralize it in the way that was wrongly done in this scenario? Like if more and more people were dying and if the vaccines were far more effective, right? Like like the analogy I would draw is you're a good citizen if you're driving under the speed limit. You're a bad citizen. You are doing the wrong thing. You are being unethical if you are driving radically above the speed limit and, and endangering others people, other people's lives on the highway so is there ever a point at which um vaccination should be moralized? if there's a, a more deadly disease and if um, a vaccine is more effective
1: you know the funny thing that's not even the hard case because in that case what would happen let's say you had a high mortality disease you have a vaccine that prevents disease if both both pre- prevents you from getting um uh getting the infection spreading the infection and also protects you against severe disease in that case everyone would get it. You wouldn't need to moralize, you wouldn't need to uh, to mandate, because it's so obviously beneficial to everybody. Um, I mean, there may be some people who want to take the risk, but it would be a vanishing small part of the population. The hard case is when you have a disease that's low mortality, but you have an effective vaccine. Uh, And then you have a subgroup of people who are particularly vulnerable. Uh, There are diseases like this, right? So like, Measles, for instance, is a disease that really hurts children, um, and uh, should you should you it's a, it's a, it's uh, the 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 vaccine itself confers very very long lasting maybe even lifetime immunity against getting and spreading measles. There, there's a real debate. Uh, I I can I'm not sure which side I fall in. I mean, I I, I could get behind mandates in that case. Um, on the other hand. Uh, another way to go is to, to it, by public health authorities that have established a lot of trust with the population is that that public health authority just by dint of the trust people have in it will just listen to it, right? So you don't need mandates if you have a trusted public health authority. You'll get a very large fraction of the population just doing what the public health authority suggests because they're trusted. Um, I think those are two ways to go, but uh, neither case applies here. This is not a disease that's um, where the infection fatality rate is thirty percent or something, um, with a vaccine that that prevents transmission, as I said, there you wouldn't need a you wouldn't need a mandate, you wouldn't need moralization, or, or uh, this is also not a disease of zero percent mortality um, with a vaccine that stops transmission. Um, you know, there, there you might there you might have uh, there, there you might make a case for, uh, for, for m- more coercive means, but in neither case can I really get behind. Uh, moralizing a medical decision. I think that, as I said, has independent negative public health effects. Um, I, I think uh, honest persuasion is much better and and uh, occasionally mandates for populations that pose risk to others may be better, but you need a better vaccine and you need different facts about this, about the disease for that to make some sense.
0: Right. And I think the fatal mistake that the FDA, the CDC, and a lot of these mainstream pundits and experts made was thinking of this vaccine, right, the Moderna and the Pfizer vaccines, as akin to the measles vaccine or the flu vaccine or other kinds of vaccination, right? I think I think in some ways that was a false equivalency because this vaccine turned out to be far less effective and the risk of the disease for the majority of young healthy people under the age of 40, let's say turned out to be far, far lower than was initially uh, speculated, right?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that's true. Although, like I say, like, I wouldn't classify the flu vaccine in the same category as the measles vaccine. That measles vaccine is a fantastic vaccine. It okay. essentially gives you lifelong immunity. The flu vaccines don't give you lifelong immunity. I don't even think that they, in most, most years, they're not anywhere near as effective as that measles vaccine is. Hmm.
0: So what's the rationale for getting the flu vaccine? I mean, I remember getting it last a couple of years ago, uh, I think senior it reduces year of high school. The severity
1: of the flu. It protects right. you against uh, severe severe cases of the flu. If right. if they guessed right and it's the right uh, the, the right strain.
0: Mhm. And, and it would depend on what risk of the flu you have in the first place. in in, in retrospect now, you know, and then, again there are dangers to this and there are there's a potential upside to this like what what kind of risk did I have from the flu at that time anyways and did it really make sense i mean, I mean the, the, flu, the assumption
1: the flu can be bad Rob. so i mean I, i'm not i'm not i i think uh, but the other the other side of the coin is that the flu vaccine tends to be much is, is pretty well understood the safety profiles are pretty well understood it's a very safe vaccine generally right um using traditional uh vac- you know sort of production technologies that are again well understood um so it's a, it's a it's a very very different thing than both the measles vaccine which i think is you know among the best vaccines that we've ever made um and the and the and the covid vaccine which is still you know even though it's been around for two years still quite new by historical standards
0: yeah 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 in, in retrospect let's say you know me getting the flu vaccine i'm not sure it was massively beneficial but i have no concerns about me getting it because of the safety profile of it i mean Adverse event rates of, you know, one per million, two per million, like very different from the COVID vaccines, especially given the myocarditis risk, which we didn't know about till a few months after they were administered, which which is very different from other vaccines that don't produce that kind of specific uh, demographic risk in in young males in particular. Um, But moving on quickly, last couple things on this before we move on to what you want to talk about Um, this other thing that Sam mentioned. And and again, we're talking about this only because this was a big viral interview and it's a lot of people are talking about it. And obviously, Lex has a massive platform and it's important to keep this conversation going across different podcasts and journalistic mediums. Uh, Sam said that it made sense at the time to defer to experts um, during the during the crisis Um, In the summer of 2021, when we were talking about vaccines and it was it it was wrong to rely on people like Brett Weinstein or Alex Berenson or whoever else. And it made much more sense to defer to the experts. And the, the problem that I have is, is that at that time in 2021, like looking back in retrospect, You know, deferring to what experts? I mean, there there was, again, this illusion of consensus, which is the theme of our podcast. There was an illusion of consensus at the time where people like Dr. Eric Topol, Dr. Peter Hotez, Dr. Sanjay Gupta at CNN, these people were deemed as as being incredibly trustworthy. And I mean, I never even heard of you at that point up until probably later in the summer of of 2021. I, I can't remember when. But these established figures, right, unlike, unlike yourself, who, who hadn't you know, done massive, big you know, media tours the way Dr. Peter Hotez or Dr. Sanjay Gupta had done before, there was this assumption that these people are reliable, that they are the experts. But in reality, what, what's your sense of the differences in views among among a wide range of experts at the time?
1: I mean, the fact is, there was a lot of a, a lot of like uh, a lot of experts that disagreed with each other about basic facts, like how, uh, the, like the, my my read of the evidence, uh, I think was reasonable based on the on the published studies of the time, um, and I think I can I, I'm I'm certainly happy to defend that, but there were experts that that disagreed with me, like that that for for lots of for, for lots of reasons, some good, some bad, um, the the idea that. You you should uh, you should yes you know, let's say you're a journalist and you don't know you can't tell what the literature actually says you don't know how to read papers uh, uh, use scientific papers in the literature you don't know how to even search for them or look for look look, look and decide for yourself uh, who's telling um, who's who, who's saying the right thing or the wrong thing what should you do right I think in that situation you absolutely have to essentially just let let different experts with different views be heard. Let people know that there are experts that are that disagree like just take the topic of does the vaccine stop transmission If you'd asked experts in uh, in December 2020 does it stop transmission the, the most reasonable experts the ones that were being most uh, sort of mo- mo- most uh, uh, accurate would say well we don't know yet. This is a real important uncertainty. Uh here's how we might know at the time, uh but over time, and here's what we ought to do given this uncertainty. On the on, you also would get experts, even even someone like the head of the CDC, Rochelle Walensky, who looked at that same evidence I looked at, and she said, Well, I hope that it prevents transmission. Uh, and she acted on that in terms of the recommendations the CDC gave regarding vaccine mandates and so on. Um, and you had experts like like me uh, who said, "Well, look, I don't think it's likely that I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't think we should act as if it prevents transmission when we don't know it prevents transmission." Um, I, you would have had a very wide range of views given the same facts, the same facts meaning the the, the set of facts that were produced by the randomized trials that were available in December of 2020. What is a journalist to do in that setting? I think the right responsible thing for journalists to do is to present that full range of views so the public can, can understand the basis for uh, on which decisions are getting made and so when things go wrong vaccine doesn't stop transmission people get who get the vaccination they do get covid you do know, doesn't lead to distrust of public health authorities because the public health authorities are seen to be uh, to be embracing the uncertainty there uh, and then taking steps to try to clear it up um i, I just i think um, the the uh, the media did it, the public, and did the did public health no favors by uh, elevating one group of experts who did not represent the the entirety of a scientific consensus. Um, in fact, they were they and they turned out to be wrong. Um, instead, they should what the media should. I mean, there's nothing wrong with being wrong in science. That's normal. It's it is the absolute norm for scientists to be wrong about basically everything. Um, what ha- what happens is data come in and it reveals how the world works, and then scientists change their minds and, be, and narrow the uncertainties. That's just normal part of the scientific process. What's irresponsible is conveying um, certainty to the public when scientists scientists themselves do not honestly have that certainty. You can't just show a- one group of experts who have one view when a very large number of views are consistent with the data and pretend like you've done the responsible thing.
0: Right. But the, the problem here is that at that time, and some of this actually comes from um, a, a private correspondence that I had with, with Sam Harris a couple months ago, um, before we talked about you, um, th- there was one concern that at the time, people like him and many others, the, the presumption was that on the basic sort of ground facts, say, vaccine efficacy, vaccine safety. Well, and, and this is where this gets very complicated very quickly. But people like Sam had the assumption and, and, and obviously many, many people in The New York Times and mainstream media, this idea that on the basic ground facts, putting aside, let's say, maybe mandates or or um, more debatable policy measures, but on the basic facts of how deadly COVID is and the safety and efficacy of vaccines, the experts are not going to be widely in, in disagreement on those facts. Like there's going to be wide agreement among all the main experts on those facts. And unfortunately, and I'm going to let you chime in on this, that turned out to be false, right? But but that that, that is at least somewhat reasonable at the time. Like if I were, you know, looking you know, into the future, let's say several years ago and someone said, well, you know, a pandemic might be coming and, you know, are you going to trust the experts and on on the safety and efficacy of a potential vaccine and on the, the fatality rate and the transmissibility of a disease? I would say yes, like, like there wouldn't be major disagreement on those issues, but it turned out that that wasn't the case and there was major disagreement. But that that is the operating presumption that many people. In the New York Times and CNN and people like Sam Harris running podcasts, that is what they thought: is that on those basic facts there was there was universal agreement on those points.
1: There, there wasn't. There was not universal agreement. And yeah. in fact, um, if, if, if the folks who think that way do not understand science, right? Yeah. Okay. There's universal agreement that gravity pulls down. Or that uh, you know, that there's there's universal agreement that the that the Earth is you know sort of spherical, um, uh, you know, with there's universal agreement that planets orbit uh, in, in around the sun in elliptical orbits. Okay, those are those are universal agreement. At, at, at those, but there, there's universal agreement now. When those ideas first came up, there wasn't universal agreement among the most knowledgeable scholarly people. It takes time for science mm. to come to universal agreement. Um, and you, you have a disease that's brand new uh, where there really isn't a lot of data about it in, let's say, you know, January 2020. How on earth would you expect it to be universal agreement about any of these things? The, the, uh, the, 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 the people that I trust in epidemiology and infectious disease policy had sharp disagreements in January 2020 about all of these things. That's why, for instance, in March of 2020, when I wrote that op-ed uh, in the Wall Street Journal about the in fact, uh, about about the, how widespread COVID was, my motivation was a hypothesis. Uh, in in the the hypothesis was that we was, was that maybe COVID is more widespread than we realized at the time. Uh, The the basis of my hypothesis was was an analogy to what happened during the H1N1 pandemic, where uh, very very early people thought it was a very deadly disease, H1N1 meaning the swine flu pandemic in 2009. Uh, People thought it was a very deadly disease, but then a few few seroprevalent studies were done that indicated that it was very widespread, much more than people realized at the time, and that it was much less deadly as a result of that being widespread. The same number of deaths, Many, many more people had had it, so the infection fatality rate was much lower. I thought, okay, in March of 2020, that's still possible for COVID. Um, the purpose of that op-ed was to to essentially to articulate hi- a hypothesis and then call for a study to clear up the uncertainty so that we could make better decisions about what to do about COVID. Um, I mean, that's how science works, right? So science works where people, uh, where, where uh on, uh, experts honestly embrace the uncertainty and then uh, propose experiments to reduce it. It's only by doing that kind of work over time that you, you, you get consensus. To jump to say, oh, we know, we, we know, we know, we know, it's just irresponsible and it, it, it misunderstands how science actually works. Most science done by practitioners of science are done in areas where there's deep disagreement because those are really the only most fun places to do science. Who wants to work on a dead science? A dead science is one where all the all the uncertainty is cleared up. You want to work in areas where there's lots still not known, and we want to use our brain to try to like reduce that uncertainty rather than just to pat ourselves on the back because we know that the Earth is spherical.
0: Right. And another topic which we've been talking about, vaccines, The the... Image that the media was casting, the message that they were giving out, whether that's in print media, podcasts, news media, scientific journals, etc., obviously government uh, agencies, was that for everyone, children, teenagers, young adults, healthy, obese, elderly, for everyone, mRNA COVID vaccination, both first, second, third, and even, I mean, now, the, the bivalent shot is in their best interests right the, currently the fda is is actively recommending that i get my you know my fifth bivalent booster shot right because you know, that's what dr peter hotez is telling me on twitter is that i should be getting my fifth booster shot right Th- that that was the mainstream expert and then now uh on the bivalent booster at least people like dr paul off and other mainstream uh pro mrna vaccine supporters are now saying the bivalent booster okay now we're going way too far here but But at least on the first two and three doses of the vaccine, the mainstream consensus perspective was that everyone should be getting this thing, excluding people who might be allergic or have some sort of genetic uh, problem that would contraindicate getting the vaccine. But everyone, including children, should get the vaccine. That was the mainstream perspective. That wasn't your perspective. So I guess I'm wondering why a certain perspective on vaccines and lockdowns and school closures was elevated over a much more balanced, nuanced and individualistic perspective that you had, which was that, you know, it it varies widely and that measures should not be broadly implemented and that individual risk factors should be taken into account. Like, why was that perspective not the mainstream, not the mainstream perspective? And why were honest, intelligent, sophisticated people again, like like Sam Harris looking out and, and looking at the best possible information and all they find is this other perspective that is not yours, they find this, this vehemently pro vaccine, pro lockdown, pro school closure perspective. Like, why was that so heavily pushed, in your opinion, as opposed to the, the perspective of you or Koldor for McCary or Vinay Prashad, et cetera?
1: Well, I think there's a, there's a lots of different reasons why people might have, might have uh, latched onto that sort of the, 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 uh, the story that most, that, uh, that, 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 you know, that this is a, such a deadly disease, that school closures are warranted, that the vaccine stops transmission and so on. I, I, th- I think, I think, like, let's, just let's stick on the topic of vaccines for a bit. You know, um, so I work on vaccine safety. I've worked on vaccine safety for, for, uh, for a very long time, including with the FDA, um, there are it's a it's a complicated difficult topic it's difficult because um, the safety uh, evaluations come after the randomized trials have already been done and you ex- uh, send a vaccine out into, into a population that wasn't necessarily studied directly in the trial you're looking for uh, outcomes that uh, that are relatively rare so you might not have seen them in the trial but you would see them in the population at large there are complicated statistical methods necessary to make sure that you're not um, mistaking um a, a, a signal for noise right you can you can have a, a an uptick in in some uh some some side effect from the vaccine uh some side effect you think is from the vaccine but in fact it's just something that happens in the population even without the vaccine you need you need control groups you need careful statistical methods to distinguish to make sure you're not uh, mistaking correlation for causation—it's a—it's a—it's a technical topic that most scientists don't do for a living. Um, a lot of scientists, it turns out, and a lot of—it turns out even a lot of doctors th- that don't understand that, um, and they—they—they they, they think about vaccines as some uniform monolithic thing. When different, when in fact, different vaccines have different properties, and the only way to learn about those properties is to actually conduct those studies. You have to. There's no. There's no shortcut to knowing about those. About this. About the studies with the vac- vaccines uh, on, on vaccine efficacy studies of vaccine side effects, reading them, uh, trying to trying to understand the strengths and weaknesses of them, correlating them with uh, with with other studies. Um, you can't extrapolate from the measles vaccine because the measles vaccine does stop block transmission to all other vaccines. You have to actually still do the work. Um, people who are who work on vaccine safety know that and people who work in evidence-based medicine understand that um not every scientist does that for a living um and so and i think a lot of the a lot of the, the sort of mistakes that professionals made regarding uh the COVID vaccine stem the fact that these professionals that were weighing in even if you let's say you make vaccines for a living right? You sit at the lab bench and you create vaccines, or you work on manufacturing standards so that the vaccines are made w- more clearly. That is still not the same thing as expertise about uh, about uh, the, the epidemiological expertise to test whether the vaccine actually works in the population at large. It's not the same thing as expertise to, to measure uh, the, the side effects caused by the vaccine. That's a very different kind of... of of, of skill and talent than someone who, who makes vaccines for a living a lot right. of the a lot of or, the, or, I think infusion for someone from the, or, or
0: someone who's a family doctor let's say right I mean I, I, think, yeah. I, I, think, your point, I think your point is well taken and I'll, I'll, I'll let you talk in a second but yeah like that, like there are the, the medical field is fast I mean, what you just pointed out family doctor versus nurse versus someone running a hospital, someone manufacturing vaccines, someone who's a surgeon, you know, like I think Marty McCary, his background is a surgeon, I believe.
1: Um, well, he, he, he has no—he has a lot of health policy experience also. He, right. he understands yeah. health, um, health uh, the, 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 I mean, I think that that health policy experience turns out to be quite useful because it trains yeah. you to think about harms and benefits more broadly than I think if you're not trained in the, in, the, in those settings. Um, I, I, I think, I mean, it's really, I think really that's, if you're going to talk, now there's other reasons why I think, uh, like a lot of experts got things wrong. We can talk about those maybe maybe over the course of other other podcasts, uh, including things like you know the experts. Many of them were actually scared for themselves, but that's that's another the topic for another time. Um, but this, this this sort of like heterogeneity of expertise, even among experts, um, a lot of a lot of people, like a lot of lay people, a lot of the the the, the, the press, really doesn't understand it. Um, and, uh, as a result, they just, they, 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 they don't really know how to evaluate when experts disagree. I mean, even when you have the same expert, like even among people who do vaccine safety for a living, there's ju- legitimate disagreement about the, the, whether, for instance, this vaccine causes heart attacks in older people. There are people who look at the data good people who have training in this who look at the data and say, yeah, it, it very likely does. And there are people who look at the same data um, and say, no, it probably doesn't. So even if you have the expertise, there may be disagreements, right? That's why you need more studies and the, the, uh, better studies to try to clear up those disagreements. But, but what you had going on during the pandemic was a, a group of experts who didn't actually know a, lo- a lot about vaccine safety analysis uh, chiming in uh, who didn't really know a lot about health policy? Didn't know a lot about, uh, about frankly, about even evidence-based medicine chiming in with with essentially an uninformed perspective about whether the even though they're experts in their own field, uninformed perspective about what the proper use, epidemiological use, of, public health use of the vaccines in 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 this setting.
0: Right. So, so you're saying that that vaccine safety is another specific field, and that experts in in that specific subfield should be recognized for their valid opinions on those, on on those given topics, as opposed to trusting anyone who has an MD or or any kind of science background, because that is kind of what happened, right? Like Dr. Sanjay Sanjay Gupta, CNN medical contributor. I, I just double checked again. Um, he has a neurosurgery background. I remember looking at this at the time. He's a neurosurgeon and a medical reporter and this big media personality who's written some great books, apparently, a lot of best selling books on medicine and whatnot. You know, he, he was on Joe Rogan's podcast, for instance, in this one interview, and Joe Rogan's pointing out to him the risk of myocarditis, and he refuses to concede that there is such a risk in young males that should.
1: I like him actually. I, I think he's a, he's a bright guy and um I I you know he's he's doing his best cause he has a very very tough job conveying scientific nuances to the to a very large public in, in language and in in ways that people find compelling and understandable. Um so it's a t- he has a tough job. I, I I do think that uh I mean I I want to be careful so like I I've I've now painted a picture of of narrow expertise um, re- required to like weigh in on, on topics like vaccine safety. I do think that, that you have to have some of that expertise. On the other hand, I have seen a lot of people without that narrow expertise, at least not, yes. not formally, who right. are better able to read the data than, yeah. uh, than people, you know, with PhDs. Um, yeah. so it's, it's, there really isn't, a way around it, you actually have to dig. You get your hands dirty. Read the papers. Grapple with the with the with the uh, the limitations. You just have to do the science, and it just takes time. Um, the expertise matters, but then so does you know. So so does interest and in intelligence, and uh, uh, the ability to pick up things quickly. Uh, good common sense about what data mean and don't mean. Um, there's a lot that goes into it. It's not. There's no simple formula. Um, what happened during the pandemic was just you know especially especially the the media they thought there was some simple formula they could use just go just go talk with you know some some uh, some expert who makes vaccines and automatically you know exactly everything you need to know about about the safety profiles the the proper way to convey to the public at large what who who would benefit the most from the vaccines um, public health messaging around moralization all that well i mean not every expert has all of that in their in their toolkit
0: right yeah so, so you're saying expertise does matter and there's a certain kind of expertise that many people opining on say vaccine safety or in positions of power implementing vaccine mandates don't have that expertise and that experience dealing with say vaccine safety but at the same time again we don't want to fall into the same trap that many other people that we've talked about before have fell into where it's just to defer to the experts like anyone who's not an expert you can't have an opinion. Only the experts have an opinion, right? That, that has been a major mistake that many people have made throughout the pandemic because many of those experts have been wrong. Many of those yeah. people who have you know their PhDs in epidemiology and virology and immunology were wrong about many, many things. So while expertise matters, as you're saying, so does critical thinking and so does having an open mind and so does, you know, being as, Politically unaffiliated as you can possibly be, like all those factors are important. And 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 the reason why I brought up Sanjay Gupta was, was only because, and then this is something that Rogan actually mentioned after his interview with him, where Gupta got a few things very very wrong, including the myocarditis concern, um, which Rogan brought up to him at the time, and it was this big viral interview because he was refusing to accept that there was a myocarditis issue because he was coming from a very strong bias for the vaccine and he was telling rogan to get the vaccine but the, the point being there that someone is smart and acting in as good faith as he was someone who i believe is, is probably a great guy who's very honest and it's really good at neurosurgery from from what i've read um, someone like that who hasn't clearly spent you know the, the the relevant and critical amount of time studying safety events from mrna vaccines and looking at all the data They were wrong about this because they didn't spend the adequate amount of time studying this particular area or they had various political biases that were preventing them from coming to this conclusion. So it's important to keep expertise in mind while also not just using expertise as your only criteria for judging whether an opinion is valid or not, because that is the fundamental mistake that the media, that government officials made, was trusting sort of a certain sector of experts who turned out to be very wrong about a number of things.
1: I mean, I think um, I, I would make some, a distinction between credentials and expertise, right? So what credentials tell you is that some, somebody's st- studied some topic enough to get some, some degree in it or to be appointed to be a professor at Stanford in it or whatever, right? That is not the same thing as expertise, Expertise requires you to have done the hard work, the critical thinking, the reading of the literature, the the weighing of evidence, uh, thinking about things more broadly. Um, I would say, like one thing, I you 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 emphasize their partisanship. You know, I think the key thing is not even partisanship. I, I I know people that are very much on the left, and I know people that are very much on the right that are capable of of that critical thinking that I learn from, um, even if I don't share their, their political beliefs. They are honest with uh, about and, and insightful about how they evaluate evidence. They've done the hard work, um, and so I think that that's really the key thing. Uh, there isn't a shortcut, Rob. There just isn't one. There's I, I can't just go plug it into ChatGPT and get the truth. I, I just there, people have to actually engage with the data, engage with other scientists who disagree, engage with um, with uh, you know the the, the, the ideas. And be open to, to changing your views and being wrong. I mean, that's there's, that's just the way science works. Um, and the idea that that, that that you can like jump to uh, jump to the, the the right answer simply because you're you know some some expert you like um, says it—that's not science. It's something else uh, altogether. It's not, in fact it's the, it's the very opposite of science. Uh, the, the the when you say skeptical, what 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 what, what you really mean is. Um, you're open to changing your views based on reason, logic, evidence, um, data, uh, all, all of that, right? That's what skepticism really is. But, and, and as the data come in, your, your view becomes um, more and more uh, firm, not because you're dogmatic, but because the, the evidence warrants it. Um, I think that's a lot of people um, during the pandemic, it has become clear to me, do not understand that basic tenet of how science actually works, the credential doesn't matter. Uh, even presumed expertise doesn't matter. All that really matters is: Are you engaging with the data? Uh, interpreting it correctly? Are are you are you making hypotheses that that turn out to be? Uh, are, are, are you are you are you have you had have you have you do you have? Uh, do you currently believe hypotheses that have a lot of data behind them, or certainly no, no data that that have excluded them? Um, do you change your mind to other hypotheses as data come in that that Convince you that the old the old idea that you had was not right. Um, that's really what science should should have been about during the pandemic. And unfortunately, doesn't wasn't always that way.
0: Before we move on, I'm going to just ask you the the same question in a different way. Um, I, I think we, we brought up so much information that we we um, this is one dimension which we forgot to really drill down on. Which is again, why do you think? Y- a certain perspective on vaccines on mandates on lockdowns and school closures was elevated over the, over your perspective. Like why, why does someone again, like Sam Harris or, or whatever, people on CNN or the New York times, why are the New York times, why are New York times reporters when they go to the experts on COVID? Why are you not included in that? Why is a certain kind of expert considered an expert, but people like you and Koldorf are not part of this quote unquote expert on COVID, right? Why did that happen in your view?
1: Well, so um, I think that that, that's a, that's a conversation we should have during the context of our, our conversation about censorship. Sure. Uh, because I think the, key, the, and maybe, we should give, given the time, maybe we can postpone that to the, ne- the to the, the, the conversation on censorship of the next podcast. Cause it, that's going to take a full, a long time. Cause, but let me just get to the nut of your question um the public health authorities in the united states in the uk in the world health organization i think were tremendously arrogant they they viewed themselves as so cert- that, that so certainly right that even even credentialed people who disagreed with them who had the, the relevant expertise who uh, did the hard work of like digging through the data and make, making the case for for their views, you know, uh, like, like some of the people you mentioned, Um, those people were dangerous in in the views of people like Tony Fauci and the views of people like uh, Francis Collins. Um, They were dangerous because uh, this was such a deadly disease and uh, people like and you know, people like Tony Fauci had the expertise to deal with it, and anyone that disagreed with him was causing the public harm. So what they what they did was that they they told the media that, that people that disagreed with them, were, even again credentialed people, people normally the media would pay attention to, um, the the media instead demonized um, the 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 uh, the. Uh, you know, probably most famously, let's just let's just focus on Tony Fauci for a little while. Uh, I mean, I, I'm sure you remember Rob the interview he gave where he was asked about about science, and um, and and, and uh, about this, his like back and forth with Senator Rand Paul about know, a whole number of topics. Um, and what what he had to say was like to me was just the very antithesis of the attitude a, a real honest scientist would have. He said. He said, um, "If you question me, you are not simply questioning a man; you are questioning science itself. Everybody knows," he said, "that I represent science. That kind of hubris has no place in science, Rob. It has no place in science, and it certainly has no place in public health. And uh, again, I think we'll we'll cover some of the details of this when, in, when we when we talk about when we do our podcast on censorship." Uh, uh, but, but that uh, people like him have tremendous power uh, over what the media say about science and scientist, other scientists have tremendous power, even over the minds of scientists themselves. Like he is a uh, he controls, uh, I think, almost 10 billion dollars of money given to uh, anyone who does infectious disease epidemiology. He's the head of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Disease. If you want to make a name for yourself in that field, you have to essentially please him. And so when he says, if you question me, you're not simply questioning a man, you're questioning science itself, that sends a very clear signal to every scientist who wants to make a name for themselves in that field that they shouldn't cross him. It was an abuse of power by him to essentially silence other scientists who censored themselves for fear of crossing him. And then when there were scientists that crossed him, uh, like take somebody like Scott Atlas, who was advisor to president Trump, who very fundamentally disagreed with Tony Fauci on lockdowns and in fact argued instead for focus protection, um, better protection of nursing homes and so on. Um, Tony Fauci used his control and his influence over the uh, 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 press outlets like the Washington Post to absolutely destroy Scott Atlas. Um, he, the, 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 they use their power to, to essentially make it outside the bounds to even criticize the ideas that they had regarding school closures, regarding uh, lockdowns, regarding a whole host of other topics. Um and I think that is the reason. That's the answer to your question about why uh even someone like sam harris would and I mean someone as intelligent as him would 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 latch on to this um th- this this idea that there were no experts worth listening to who disagreed with the with the with the uh, the illusion of consensus that was put forward by someone like tony fauci
0: mm. so you're saying that because fauci has so much control and power over over uh over scientific grants there's a perverse incentive for scientists who are up and coming to in order to preserve their career and their livelihoods and their reputation to toe the line and not to deviate outside of that when it comes to school closures lockdowns and vaccines and so therefore there was kind of a formation of consensus because many people sort of put their own livelihoods and their own scientific careers before say getting at the truth is that what you think
1: yeah i mean i think you know I i think um uh, people sometimes think of scientists as like they think of like you know if you ever watched Star the original Star Trek you saw Mr. Spock right very famously just all he cares about logic, um, uh, you know tremendously sympathetic character in other ways but he's like he's he's just this this sort of like uh, near autistic uh, focus on on logic and and uh, and reason. Uh, scientists aren't actually like that. Scientists respond to incentives. Scientists care about many things in addition to the. Uh, the uh, the the scientific topics that they that they also care about specifically, um, and so the the idea that uh, the scientists would respond to these incentives created by someone like Tony Fauci shouldn't surprise anybody. Uh, and I wouldn't even blame scientists. Like, in order to be able to do the experiments you care about, you have to make sure that you can get funding from, and that the, the funding sources like the NIAID are really important funding sources. Um, it's not just that, but also your social status within science that allows you to do the, the scientific work you care about depends on getting uh, getting grants from the uh, the NIAID, right? So, for instance, I, I have tenure at Stanford University. Uh, one of the major... Uh, things that you kind of have to do to, to show that you are an accomplished scientist at, at a medical school like Stanford is to get grants from the NIH. So what you have is just someone in that position like Tony Fauci or Francis Collins, who's the head of the NIH, they have tremendous power over the minds of scientists, what scientists work on, uh, even the ideas that scientists have about what they're working on. Uh, the, the, there, there's a, a lot of like social pressure to try to make sure that you're in, you're in on the right side with, with, uh, with them and about the, and, and the agency that they, that they, that they had. Um, so in a sense, Rob, it's kind of like a, it's, it's, it's kind of a conflict of interest, uh, which I, I mean, I didn't fully realize until, until I saw it during the pandemic. If you have somebody who controls those, the, that kind of holds, that kind of power in what scientists do and say that person or that set of people shouldn't have almost no role whatsoever in health policy making because then you won't get scientists giving their 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 full and honest opinions about topics on which they're pretty sure that if they cross tony fachi science itself then they're going to their 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 careers might be harmed uh, there ought to be a bright ethical line that, that if you have those roles, you're the head of the NIH, you should play no role whatsoever uh, about pandemic decision-making other than what is the right science to fund and how can you get the scientific community organized to focus on uh, focus its, its ideas and its talents on the most important questions. And then leave the scientists themselves to answering those questions however however it comes out, rather than giving your opinion about what the right policy ought to be even before the science is done.
0: Mm. Yeah, that 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 is quite insane to think about. I mean, I'm trying to think of a different word that how one person could have this much power. Right. You're saying like if instead of Fauci we had, say, you or Martin Kulldorff as the chief medical advisor to the united states during the pandemic you're saying the whole narrative could have shifted and therefore all of like public policy could have been completely different if it were just someone else in that one position i,
1: I, th- I think it's a small number of people i wouldn't say it's a single person but i think uh, yeah but yeah there is a if if the if the set of people who were funding science um you know, there. You know, it's not just it's not just Tony Fauci, it's Francis Collins. It's uh, there are others like the, the head of the Welcome Trust in uh, in the UK, Jeremy Farrar, a few o- a few other uh, folks in public health. If those people had been different, mm. had had been had acted more responsibly, permitted uh, the 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 uh, the permitted the debate to actually happen, as opposed to deciding they knew best uh, from the very earliest days of the pandemic about what to do. Yeah, I think we would have had a very, very different pandemic response. Um, for instance, if I were the head of the NIH, I would not have weighed in on whether, uh, uh, wh- 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 whether lockdowns were are, are a wise idea or not a wise idea. I, for instance, I would never have, if someone uh, wrote the Great Barrington Declaration, not me, and I was the head of the NIH, I would have stayed silent. I would have let that scientific debate work itself out because uh, my job isn't to like weigh in on those kinds of debates my job is to is to enable uh, a scientific environment where those kinds of debates happen and people don't feel threatened because they because they they take one side or other of those kinds of legitimate debates um, they, they, their, their job essentially is to is to create the environment where science can happen that's the purpose of of a job as the, like the head of the NIH or the purpose of the job like the head of the NIAID is to create an environment where scientists feel free to do their work to, to apply their talents um, and where that 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 talent really is focused on generating hypotheses, generating data, debating about about interpreting those data, formulating uh, reformulating hypotheses in light of the data. Um, let, let, let let that scientific debate happen. Create an environment where. So the best scientists are focused on engaging in that debate and then let that debate lead to wherever it leads. I wouldn't be expressing an opinion on that outcome at all.
0: Mm. Yeah. I really like the place that we're in right now. And so before we wrap up, I just want to like, again, just talk about more about other potential factors of why this illusion of consensus was created. One point that Dr. Vinay Prashad made on Twitter recently was that in medicine and scientific research, the people who go into those fields, there's a natural kind of selection for people who are extremely deferential and respectful towards authority and people in power. There's an extreme kind of obedience, lack of uh, lack of uh, contrarianism or deviation from what's being told. There's, there's a certain kind of pathway for following certain decrees. Do you think that's one aspect of, of all this? Is that many, say, doctors, MDs, practitioners of medicine, there, there was a lack of of skepticism and a, just a, a, a disproportionate, um, trust in, 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 in pharma and the, the decrees that that Fauci and other CDC and FDA officials are making.
1: So, I mean, I do think in medicine, there is this like, there is this tendency to respect hierarchies, right? So you enter, uh, you enter medicine as a medical student at the bottom of a, of a very steep hierarchy where at the top is the attending physician. What the attending physician says is 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 what's going to happen most of the time. You're not, as a medical student, uh, inclined to like uh, to gain, say, what an attending phys- physician says 99 times out of 100. You're going to be wrong, and the, the attending physician is going to be right because that attending physician has way more experience and knowledge than you. Um, and so there is this, like, uh, sort of deference to authority in medicine that's that's sort of built into medicine. Um, uh, science you wouldn't generally think would have that, right? So like you know, science has this tradition of young turks overturning um, basic things that people thought they knew, but but the young turks were right, right? So like uh, you know, uh, uh, Max Planck says uh, the he was a very famous, very famous physicist uh, who says that science advances one obituary at a time. The young guys. Have a new idea that turns out to be better aligned with the data. The old, old, crusty scientists who had the old ideas um, hold on to their old ideas forever until they die, and then, and then, science moves on to the ideas of the young turks because the, the, those young, young guys have those young, young people, the young scientists have better ideas that are more aligned with what the data actually show and more persuasive, right? Um, that's the picture of, of of like a healthy science that allows. Uh, data to decide who's right and wrong uh, analysis logic to decide who's right and wrong not rather than rather than just simply authority uh, I think what's happened in science over the last few decades especially biomedical science is there's been some erosion of that rob uh, before the pandemic I worked a lot on science policy and in particular i was working on on um, what are the what are, what makes a scientist try out new ideas novel ideas take risks right so in for instance, in, um, when, in when you talk about uh, uh, when, when you talk about like uh, uh, the, 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 the VC world, uh, so the startup world, uh, VCs will fund a lot of crazy startups, and people are, people who are doing those crazy startups they're taking risks with their lives and their careers. Most of the time, most of those things end up failing. The VCs know that, so they fund a lot of it. Uh, and and uh, if they can just get, you know, if they fund 100 crazy startups and one of them turns out to be Google, that was a very successful round of funding. Um, you, you, you're in, in, the, in the startup world, that kind of risk-taking is the norm. In science, it turns out it's become less of the norm. Just uh, let's stick with the NIH for a bit. Um, in the 1980s, the uh, the median age of somebody, meaning like ha- half or lower, half or higher, the median age of someone getting their first big grant from the NIH was about 35, 36, somewhere in the mid-30s. Today, it's somewhere in the mid-40s. The biomedical sciences have become more focused, more, more, have given more and more power to older and older scientists over time. It's much harder for a young scientist with new ideas to break in and say, "Ah, oh, gosh, what, what all these old guys are saying is wrong. Uh, give me a shot. Let me, let me have some resources so I can generate the experiments, and data to test my ideas to show that they're wrong. Uh, it's become much more conservative over time. Um, and I think that's a problem that, that also has led to exactly the thing you were talking about, that kind of deference. Um, yeah, it's not, it's not surprising, um, that, uh, that, that a lot of younger scientists look uh, essentially deferred to older scientists, you know, Tony Fauci's in his eighties, um, in part because the power of young scientists in biomedicine to, to gain resources so that they can test their newer ideas have been, have been di- diminishing over the last decades.
0: Mm. Right. Is, is there anything else on your mind on, on how this illusion of consensus was created? I mean, I, I wonder if like psychological disposition or, or political philosophy in general, I mean, some people are just more, more fearful than other people are some people are more risk-taking than others and 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 there was this consensus on we have to save lives at all costs so everything so, we have to do we have to save lives vaccinate everyone lockdown down all, all, all sectors of american and canadian and british life close down schools because we don't want any you know deaths now obviously that's a flawed uh, model because that led to other kinds of deaths but that was sort of the generating sentiment to a lot of these policies, is that we have to protect as many people as possible. So let's implement the most strictest measures and not allow or accept any kind of dissent on these perspectives because we need to save lives. You
1: know, it's funny, I, I, but I agree with that first part, Rav. I think we should, have, we, should, we should try to minimize the harm uh, and, 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 and maximize life. That is a, that's a completely yep. worthy yep. goal, yep. uh, yes. the problem was the second part, the lockdowns, the school closures, they don't actually minimize harm or minimize death. I actually think the lockdowns are likely to have ended up killing more people than, than, than they, than, than they saved. Uh, because it, uh, like just take the early days of the pandemic, um, where people would say, well, uh, it's lives versus the economy. And of course, lives are more important than the, than the, than the economy. Well, that's true. I agree with that. Lives are more important than the economy. The problem is, like, uh, if you uh, if you impose a policy that impoverishes uh, a poor country, well, you're going to kill a lot of people. A lot of people are going to become uh, well, so poor that they starve. That actually happened during the pandemic. Um, the, the lockdown policies were incredibly destructive for life because the economy... The way that it was damaged by the lockdowns ended up harming the lives to the point of death of many, many, many poor people. Um, so it's uh, – but but uh, on the other hand, the, the psychological disposition to say, well, I can see how a lockdown might save my life, right? I don't have to go out. I can have people uh, deliver groceries to me. I can have people um, – uh, I, I can never, I can, I, I can, I won't lose my job if I, uh, if I lock down because I am I have a job that, that, uh, that, you know, is in a laptop class and I can, I can avoid, uh, I, I can avoid losing it even, even though I don't have to go in. I, I can, I can protect myself. A lot of scientists are in that laptop class. And so if you were fearful for your own life because you thought the COVID risk was very high. Even if you don't tell yourself exactly this, the the psychological disposition may incline you to support policies that reduce your risk of death, or at least you perceive it as reducing your risk of death. I think that definitely played a role in the thinking of many, uh, many people, not just scientists, of course. Um, uh, Whereas in the broad picture... um, Really, it was like you're asking other people to take risks that you yourself wouldn't otherwise take. that You wouldn't want to take, right? So you go out, uh, deliver the groceries. You go out, grow the food. You go out, repair the repair the electrical systems. You go out and um, sh- uh, ship the ship the, the the goods that I want uh, to me. You you go out and work at Amazon or whatever. Uh, you go out and and and, um, and work in the work in the restaurant. Uh, to, to, to cook the food for me. I mean, all of that, all of these like, incre- oh, you go out and, and uh, take care of patients, right? Uh, uh, I mean, all of that is like, these are essential features, but essentially what happened is people, and scientists, again, were no exception, offloaded that risk to other people, thinking that they were being responsible by reducing the risk to them when in fact all they were doing was a changing, uh, is increasing the risk to others so that they could benefit. I think a lot of that played a role uh, even among scientists thinking um, in the early days of the pandemic.
0: Mm. And the other thing on my mind and feel free to mention any other factors that come up to your mind, but obviously the politicization of the pandemic too, how being pro vaccine turned out to be a liberal cause being vaccine skeptical was more of a conservative cause, even though there's a, there's a lot of overlap and complexity, but that's kind of how it was treated. Like at first when under the Trump administration, the vaccines are being rushed under Operation Warp Speed, um, people like Kamala Harris were like, oh, this Trump vaccine. No, we're not going to get that. We're not going to touch the Trump vaccine because of the way that it was rushed. And it appears that there was some some uh, pressure put on uh, by the Trump administration on the FDA to quickly get it released before the election. Uh, but then afterwards, after the election, suddenly it was, oh, we absolutely have to support everyone getting this vaccination and suddenly people on the right were more vaccine skeptical. And so there was suddenly the, the consensus and obviously in, in the mainstream media, it's dominated by people on the left for a number of interesting reasons that Jonathan Haidt has written about, about how journalism selects for more left leaning people, whereas other fields just select for more conservative leaning people. And so if being on the left is, is associated with being pro lockdown and pro-vaccine mandate then people in the media are going to be more inclined to support that position whereas other more right-leaning people let's say are are going to be more vaccine skeptical now obviously that's that's a simplification in many ways but that is kind of what what happened in terms of the political tribalism that got woven into pandemic policy
1: that's funny i i don't i think that that's such an american thing like i i don't I didn't see that kind of political pol- polarization around the vaccines out you know left versus right outside Canada uh, as well the US. Canada, I Canada. No, okay Canada, I'll grant you Canada but I don't think that's true in Europe. It certainly didn't happen in in in, in like say India or I I mean I don't I didn't see a right left polarization on the vaccines. And even the lockdowns um it's not I mean like if, you, if I had asked you, Rob, before the pandemic, who was going to be in favor of, of the, the right or the left in favor of authoritarian policies to, 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 to crush the pandemic um, that violate civil liberties, would you have said the left or right before the pandemic?
0: Well, I, I would have said, like, that's something that I might have associated with Trump, maybe. I mean, I don't know, left or right, but I would have said, like, someone who's like a very strong, you know, right wing kind of voice, whereas I would think someone who's more on the left would be more compassionate and open. And not as inclined to institute these policies, but people like Justin Trudeau here in Canada, who is, you know, always campaigning on love and compassion and inclusivity, implemented the most, like some of the most draconian extreme measures on this front.
1: Yeah. So, I mean, uh, the, the, the left and right dichotomy is, in some sense, it was flipped in, some, uh, in, in, um, in terms of the lockdowns, at least in North America. Uh, At least, like, well, certainly in Canada, right? So in in Canada, you had a left-wing government imposing really, really draconian lockdowns. In the United States, who imposed the lockdowns? Well, it was President Trump. It was a right-wing government that imposed the lockdowns. Um, But the state governors broadly speaking uh, the, the there were state governors on the right who were the mo- most likely to push back against the lockdowns people like Governor DeSantis um or or Christine ohm uh, whereas people uh, people on the left tend to be in favor of lockdowns like governors like uh Governor Newsom in my state in California um on the other hand you also had some Democratic governors that were much, m- much more relaxed in terms of, for instance, school closures. Right, Jared Polis in, in in Colorado, for instance, or Gina Raimondo in in Rhode Island. Democratic governors that were much less uh, uh, harsh with school closures. You know, open schools were, were made a priority to try to open schools. Um, and you had governors on the right that were much, much, much more lo- mo- lockdown friendly, like Governor Dewine in Ohio. Um, uh, in the UK, you had a right wing government that was in favor of lockdowns. In Sweden, you had a socialist government that was against lockdowns. So the left-right dichotomy here is complicated. Same and in it, the UK,
0: by the way. Jer- Jeremy Corbyn, the head of the Democratic uh, Socialist Party in the UK, he was opposed to vaccine mandates. Yeah. Whereas yeah, the Labour head
1: Labour, right? But I, I mean, I agree. I think I think it's it's just it's it's the 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 partisanship that we've seen in North America around this is. Um, uh, it's hard to characterize as directly just left, right. Um, but it's, it is certainly like that kind of political, politicization has played a tremendously important role uh, in how scientists have behaved, especially in the United States. That's true. I suspect it's true in Canada as well. Um, you, you had a lot of scientists uh, you know, like just, just take public health, right? So the, sci- the the scientists who work in public health, they tend to be on the left. They tend to be, you know, Democratic Party, partisans, um, you, you had like, so just for, in the early days of the pandemic uh, is a good example, um, you had pro-lockdown, uh, you know, anti-lockdown protests happening, and public health has won uh, very loudly. You said, oh, no, this is really responsible, bad for public health. People shouldn't be opposing the lockdowns, and there shouldn't be, it should, there shouldn't be a right to protest during a pandemic. Um, but then when uh, George Floyd was murdered, and you had, uh, the 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 protests around George Floyd, all of a sudden, public health says, "Well, it's a basic human right to protest, and people should be able to protest around something that's, a, that's such a basic civil right like this." Um, and you know what? They were right about George Floyd protests. They should they, people should have that right to protest around basic civil rights, but they were they were wronged not to apply that same reasoning to. Uh, to anti-lockdown protests that were happening, mostly by people in the United Mm. States on the right. Well,
0: to play devil's advocate, a lot of those protests were happening, say, a year before the George Floyd protests, say, summer of 2020, when far less was known. Do you think the right to protest should have still been allowed in summer of 2020 versus
1: 2021? Well, the George Floyd protests happened in the summer of 2020. Um, uh, the, oh, the, sorry. Yeah, yeah.
0: Oh gosh, I got the years mixed up. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. That, you're 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 the pandemic really kicked in, right? March 2020.
1: Right. Yeah. yeah. I mean, the, yeah. the anti-lockdown protests were happening in like April, May 2020. Um, yeah. in in some states, mostly by the right. I, I think both both left and right are citizens and have the right have the right pro- to protest. Public health ought to acknowledge that that's a basic civil right, just like they did with the George Floyd protest. But because public health practitioners in the United States and scientists in the United States tend to be on tend to be almost almost uniformly on the left members of the Democratic Party um, th- they they said yes to the George Floyd protests and no to the anti-lockdown protests uh, th- A lot of people on the right saw that and then stopped trusting people in public health because they thought well these people don't represent us. Um, I I think that politicization played a tremendously important role in explaining a lot of the behavior of some scientists Um, uh, but it was complicated it wasn't in the United States the politics were different than in Sweden say or was different than the UK than was different in Canada uh, about who who was on the left and who was on the right Uh, I mean it's it's, uh, uh, but I I should say this is that public health if it's going to be uh, uh, if it's going to be politically partisan on one side will guaranteed to fail, because if it does that, the people uh, uh, on the other political side won't trust public health, won't trust the people in public health, because they'll think that, it's, that those people in public health aren't acting in their interests, don't understand their concerns. And I can completely understand that, Rob. I can understand why someone who, in, for instance, the United States is on the political right, looks at the behavior of public health over the last three years, in particular about, about the, the, the partisanship of public health the last three years, and thinks to themselves, these people don't represent me. They don't have my best interest at heart.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I, I totally agree. Uh, is there anything else on your mind before we wrap this up?
1: No, we've been going for a while. This was, this was a good conversation. I think that uh, just just to, just to let people uh the like listeners know. I mean, I think this is a tremendously complicated topic about how uh the, the but the but what should have happened during the pandemic was a, a lot of these like um a lot of these things if 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 we're put in with professionals in charge that that understood um their obligations to the public you you would never have seen happen. You would have seen a scientific debate um happen in earnest a lot of it would have been brutal actually a lot of people disagreeing fundamentally with each other but the science would have been done better and the public would have been protected better with better uh better truer understanding of the disease and of the policies necessary to combat it earlier had uh had the had the uh public health authorities acted in a way that was uh uh more responsible
0: Mm. yeah this was a great conversation um I think we hit on some important topics. We were going to talk about censorship, but we ended up talking I think importantly on the nature of expertise and how this illusion of consensus surrounding pandemic policy was created, which is broadly the theme of our podcast, right? The 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 dangers of scientific uh, the, the the dangers of creating an illusion of consensus on various scientific matters. So I'm I'm glad we we lingered there and and, and spoke about um, those relevant topics, and especially your point on how many scientific uh, discoveries in, in in health science or astrophysics, etc., a lot of those discoveries were made in in contrast or or contrary to the dominant view at that time. So just because there's a dominant scientific view um, in a given realm doesn't mean it's automatically right, and it doesn't mean automatically that people who question it are wrong, because those people could be right and. In the case of the pandemic, many of the people in power, many people trusted to be experts proved all too humanly their own fallibility and their own uh, inability to to critically and objectively understand the complexities of the, of the pandemic. And as a result, we we instituted disastrous policies on, on school closures, lockdowns and and vaccine mandates, et cetera. So. I think it's important that we, we highlighted these these various concerns because a lot of these topics are not being talked about in, quote, unquote, mainstream circles. But at the same time, podcasts and alternative media is is booming because of this, because more and more people are waking up and, and realizing that a lot of the things that they have been told have turned out to be utterly
1: wrong. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Well, thanks for this opportunity to talk, Rob. I look forward to next time we can talk about censorship.
0: Yeah, of course. Look forward to it. All right. Thanks, everyone, for tuning in, and uh, we'll see you next time.